Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today, I'm going to be talking to my friend Troy Newman, and those of you who are active in the pro-life movement uh, will know all about his work with his organization, Operation Rescue. Uh, Those of you who don't know about his work are in for a really exciting listen, because the stuff that he does... Uh, is is just really fascinating and incredibly effective. So just to give you a little bit of background on Troy before we jump into this week's interview, he was adopted at birth and raised in San Diego. He now has decades of experience in the pro-life movement. He's going to tell us the story of how he got involved in the pro-life movement in just a moment. And his work has been featured in Rolling Stone Magazine, GQ, USA Today, World Net Daily, The Wall Street Journal, The LA Times, The New York Times, and you name it. He's also the published author of a number of different books. Uh, Abortion Free is the most recent of his books, which we discuss extensively on the podcast. It's basically Troy Newman's strategy for shutting down abortion clinics and making the United States of America abortion free. He lives in Wichita, Kansas with his wife, Melissa, and their children. And so without any further description, because that's the subject of today's conversation, this is my conversation with Operation Rescue's president, my friend, Troy Newman. Yeah, so just to start off, how did you end up getting involved in the pro-life movement uh, to begin with? If I if I recall correctly, it had something to do with your honeymoon. <laughs> you know, it certainly was not planned, and it wasn't something I was looking to get into. I had been uh, part of a church, a local Calvary chapel, was studying. It kind of felt this call in my life to become a pastor or missionary in some degree, and we were were married in Southern California and San Diego. We took a trip down to Mexico and camped out on the beach, just having a great time, enjoying the sun, the sand, the atmosphere, the warm weather. And it turns out that we were camped real close to uh, a man by the name of Peter French, who's literally become a lifelong friend of mine. Right. And he had just gotten out of jail. And so he came over to our campsite to tell tell us how excited he was that he had just gotten out of jail. And I'm thinking, let's pack the bags. We're in the middle of Mexico. Get the heck out of here. And he says, no, 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 no. I was in jail for rescuing babies, uh, Operation Rescue. And I said, well, what's Operation Rescue? And he says, oh, my gosh, you call yourself a Christian? Has your head been buried in the sand? <laughs> Where have you been? Right. And that was the my initiation by fire, if you will, into the pro-life movement and God brought me in uh, fully, not all about kicking and screaming, but it wasn't my first uh, avenue for, uh, for for a career choice. So he, if I recall correctly, showed you a picture of an aborted baby. You might remember, some people been around a while, might remember this old picture that was on pamphlets. Actually, it came from a Canadian teaching hospital, three or four babies, is black and white, in a black trash bag. Yeah, it's from Toronto. Oh, and I just, I literally just couldn't believe it. It, it, it. First first thought was disbelief. The second thought was uh, horror at and, and, and just grieving over these lost babies. And then it morphed into this righteous indignation. Not in my country. Not on my watch. How can this happen? i got to stop everything. And I went on somewhat of a crusade 
trying to educate everybody I knew from pastors and elders and friends and family members and probably, not probably, I did alienate quite a few people with my zeal for life, which right. I'm not embarrassed or ashamed of. But it, to, to my shock and dismay, so many people knew about abortion. I had no clue. I mean, I was literally in the dark. Uh, but when I found out about it, I was on this crusade to tell everybody, and, and a lot of people, pastors, would say, yeah, 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 we kind of know about that, but that's the social gospel. We're, we're just into here, you know, just preaching the gospel, or that's, you need to go talk to different people, and we're not, we don't participate in that. And I thought, my goodness, this is humanity. These the, Children are dying. Children are being murdered. How in the world can you say we're not going to participate in this? It's so interesting that you bring up that photograph again because you were the second pro-life activist now to come onto this podcast and say that was the image that launched you onto a lifelong involvement in the pro-life movement. That was that same photo that inspired Joe Scheidler to get involved. Right. And he said, right. "Well, you see, this was before for all of our millennial friends out there. Th- th- guess what? There was a time period before the internet." And in order to get pictures and so forth, you either got them from National Geographic, the television, the three or four channels that we had, or or, uh, encyclopedias. And every year, different encyclopedias would come out, different versions, right? Almost like 1984, the Ministry of Truth. Right. Uh, You know, they, they would revise things. You know, today it's much easier for the Orwellian Minister of Truth to change things. It's it's called Wikipedia. Uh, but back then, you, you, it was almost like the revolutionary days. You had to hand out pamphlets. And, I mean, literally, the, we, we handed out, I had a track ministry where we'd hand out gospel tracts out at the beach and so forth. But someone handed me a pro-life track, and it talked about abortion very simply and with pictures. And it's the pictures that, that change your heart. You can, your mind can be changed. We can argue someone into the pro-life community based on facts and evidence, if they're willing to listen. But if you really want to change their heart, if you want to get them activated, if you want to change the world, show them a picture of an aborted baby. Even more, bring the, put an aborted baby into their hands. Dig one out of the trash cans. Take them to an abortion mill and let them see the black and white nature of this argument. This isn't about tax cuts or building a wall here or there, things that are important, the right, the right to own a gun, those are all you know, very important issues that we need to discuss. But this is an issue of life and death, murder. And I'm not ashamed of using very strong, strident language like murder, abortionist, baby killer, and so forth. Because right. that, that's what we have to strip the veneer away from uh, a, a respectability that the abortion industry wants to have and has maintained for a long time. Now it's being destroyed. They're yeah. not respected doctors in our community. They're butchers of mankind. So what year was it that you saw this photo? You were on your honeymoon. You saw this photo, and then you basically headed back right after your honeymoon to join Operation Rescue, which is a is a pretty crazy way to start off on pro-life activism, going from you know, discovering what this is all about to let's get arrested in front of abortion clinics. So (laughs) what year was that? And then what was that kind of transition period? Because um, I thought before, too, that that often the spouses of people who get involved in in pro-life activism kind of get dragged along for the ride. So what did your wife think about this transformation in Troy's life? Right. So my poor wife, she's such a saint. 
you know, I was at the time I was a customer engineer for Laurel Aerospace, working within the Department of Defense, maintaining flight simulators and mainframe uh, computers and so forth. Pretty decent career path. I had some offers to work uh, in what was called the San Diego Silicon Valley, and uh, that was kind of a, a great career path. It certainly would have made a whole lot more money. But when I got back and I just wanted to do everything I could, I helped start pregnancy counseling centers. I got involved in some picketing. We got involved in Operation Rescue's uh, involvement in shutting down abortion clinics vis-a-vis uh, uh, peaceful, nonviolent uh, actions, such as sitting in front of the doors of abortion clinics uh, and so forth. So I did get arrested to the shock and dismay of my wife and pastor and parents and friends and family members because they didn't understand it. But at that point, that was 1991, the, the rescue movement was really waning. It, it had literally pinnacled that summer as I was getting married. It pinnacled in Wichita, Kansas, which is where I'm talking to you from today, from a closed abortion clinic, by the way, an abortion clinic that we closed. Uh, and so this transition uh, took a couple of years. I was still working. Of course, in, in the Department of Defense, you have to have a security clearance. And once you got get involved in some radical activities like getting arrested in front of the doors of abortion clinics, even if you pled guilty or if you if you uh, the case was dismissed, it was still questionable to have a security clearance. Of course, if you're Hillary Clinton, you get you can get involved in all, Podesta, you know, involved in all sorts of different things. But that, of course, you know, you're higher up in the in the government. But a lowly guy like me, I was in, I was in, uh, it was a concern to lose my security clearance and thus my job. So we transitioned in 1993 into being full-time pro-life activists. And again, we, we tried everything. We housed uh, people in our home that were pregnant. We started pregnancy counseling centers. We started raising money for some of these things. Uh, we got well-versed. We edu- I just consumed my life of reading everything. You mentioned Joe Scheidler, read Joe Scheidler's books, Dr. Wilkie's books, uh, Paul DePerry, Andrew Burnett, uh, uh, everybody. I um, read all the books. It's become really well-educated. And I'll tell you what, as time went on, I started to really think mechanically, strategically. Right. Um, because, you know, you can be really busy and not do anything. Um, speaking of Mexico, one time I was down there with Peter, and we were stuck in the sand. It was high-centered. You probably have this problem sometimes up in the snow in Canada, where you're, you can just press the gas pedal full forward, and your wheels can be spinning, and you're spitting mud or snow or, or sand everywhere, but you're not going anywhere. And I found at the time, and it's still true today, that a lot of people can be very busy. You can fly here and speak to a group of people and fly there, and you can wear yourself out. But at the end of the day, what's happening? Have you done anything good? Have you actually accomplished anything? So I started to become really more strategic in my thinking, and we started to uh, uh, focus in on the weak link of the abortion industry, and that was the abortionist. And we found very quickly that with just a little bit of pressure, because the stigma of abortion is so strong, with a little bit of pressure, you can really convince these abortionists, these baby killers, to stop doing abortions. Mark Crutcher, our good friend at Life Dynamics, kind of calls them level one, level two abortionists. Level one abortionists, they're just in there to make a little bit of money. They get a side job. Uh, but the level two abortionists, they move up in ranks. They're full-time abortionists. And in San Diego, over a period of five years, we were able to convince half 
of all the abortionists in the in the city, like something like 35 of them, to stop doing abortions. And we closed a dozen abortion clinics. Right. Just like that. And that's where the rubber meets the road, Jonathan. Um, getting Moving the ball forward or moving progressively toward ending abortion, which is our goal, there's only a couple of matrics that you can look at to determine whether or not we're winning, right? I mean, so many of the people in the pro-life movement, they, they throw out words, we're winning, we're losing, we're, 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 we're uh, I think our, our friend Scott Klusendorf wrote uh, an article around the beginning of the year that said we're just kind of, we didn't, we're not winning or losing, we're just holding our ground. Holding steady. Holding steady. I believe, and we have the facts and figures to prove it, that we're actually winning the fight. Now, Troy, how do you determine that? It's not the number of laws that we pass. It's not the number of speaking engagements that we go to. It's not the amount of dollars that we raise. It's not who gets elected president or who's in the Supreme Court. The only way we can determine whether or not we're closer to ending this Holocaust of our time is the number of babies being saved and the number of abortion mills closing down. Okay, it's a simple thing, right? And in 1991, when I first got started, Jonathan, there were 2,176 murder mills in the United States. I got that number from Mark Crutcher. He's very good. He's, he's a statistical guy, a spreadsheet guy like me. Right. Today, that number's down to 701. That's a reduction of 68% of the number of baby-killing centers. Now, Jonathan, you may not be old enough to know what an 8-track tape is <laughs> or a cassette tape. Cassette tapes I listened to when I was a kid. 8-track tapes I spotted in my grandmother's basement. Albums, okay, we don't have the, there's a real resurgence now in, in albums coming back, but, you know, these vinyl, but we are all, it's all on digital media now. Uh, the, these abortion mills are going the way of the 8-track tape, and I can't wait till they're completely extinct. And there's a lot of reasons why we get there, and we can talk about that, but the, the correlation, we work on the supply side of the abortion industry. In other words, fewer abortion mills are going to produce fewer dead babies, and that's the case. And you look at the numbers of abortion, again, 1991 being the high watermark, there were 1.6 million abortions done in the United States. And now I know we can't fully rely on the CDC and Guttmacher, but those numbers have consistently shown that the number of babies being killed in America are now under a million. That's right. Yeah. And so that correlates almost a one-for-one one for the number of abortion mills closed, which is why, uh, as president of Operation Rescue now for the past 15, 20 years, I am focused solely on one thing, going after the enemy's weak spot, and that's closing down these murder mill, chop shop, disgusting places that that profit from the wholesale slaughter of innocent children. Let's back up a little bit to when you first started realizing this was the weak link. And I've got a couple of questions here, because this is something you deal with quite extensively in your book, uh, Abortion Free, which came out a couple of years ago. Uh, I remember when uh, I was expecting our, our first child, you contacted me and told me a story um, 
No, this was a different time. This is this is a story you told me when we were at the Republican convention in Ohio in uh, in 2016. And I remember you telling me that you were so obsessed with with pro-life activism. And at this time, um, you were focusing on Dr. George Tiller. Uh, At one point, your wife left you a note on the counter um, to remind you that just because babies were dying didn't mean that, you know, you couldn't actually um, pay attention to your family as well. And you told me that that really helped you balance out and and realize that you had to do uh, you had to do more to ensure that you were doing all of the things that you needed to do at the same time. And I asked uh, Joe about this, and I also talked to Scott Klusendorf a little bit about this. So could you tell our listeners a bit about that story and what it's like to try and figure out how to balance the most important cause that, that there is in Western civilization, I would argue, um, with the fact that you also have primary responsibilities as a husband and a dad? Yes, of course. And I think that's, uh, throughout history, the largest concern. You know, you're King David, and you're trying to manage a kingdom for the glory of God, and you lose your children you know, uh, like Absalom. And so that's a big deal. And I was, uh, I remember I I was racing in from work and I changed clothes and I raced back out again to go picket somebody. I I think it might've been Hillary Clinton uh, during the Clinton years. And when I got back, my wife was literally gone. My wife and newborn baby was literally gone. And, and she, the note on the counter was don't make, she said, Troy, do not make me compete with the lives of dead babies or don't make me compete with dead babies. Right. And it was truly heartbreaking. Now she came back the next morning, she stayed in the hotel and we uh, worked things out, but certainly through the years, you know, it, it, we, we do understand that there's a, an urgency in our actions. Uh, if we could end abortion uh, today, we would do it. Right. Yeah. But what if, what we did today, it uh, ended abortion, say, in a couple of years. It, it, it ended it by one day. There's something you could do that ended abortion one day sooner. In America, that would be about 3,000 babies that you just saved. Right. But what if we took the day off and we did the next, uh, what we were going to talk about, this action, uh, in a day or two? Well, that would extend the killing for a day or two, and that would be the lives of three or 6,000 more babies. So the urgency here is imminent and it's pressing and for those of us like you that think about this the first thing we think about in the morning and the last thing we think about before we go to bed uh we we do need to balance it in the here and now yeah and i i just i urge people that are in the pro-life movement don't look at this like you know a nine to five 401k job and it's just some abstract thing like any other job no it's not it's very urgent very militant but at the same time, you've got to live what we call a normal life. And I, I mean, I've taken my kids hunting. We've all gone through some martial arts degrees. I have a couple of black belts, just normal people. We go to the movies. We go fishing. We eat dinner together. We go horseback riding. We go hunting together. Uh, we go on vacation together. And you know what? Very little, since that day that my wife wrote that note, very little of what I do during the day uh, or for the pro-life movement is brought home. And I think that w- that's critical to the success of my marriage. I, mean, I know that there are other people out there that are able to kind of have co, uh, 
activist husband and wives and bring activist children in, and that I'm glad that works for them. But for for my family, uh, there has to be a clear delineation between the the urgency of ending child killing and the urgency of raising children and having a normal life and a normal family. Now, I guess as normal as can be, I've yeah. been to jail, deported from Australia, being sued by Planned Parenthood. You know, when your your dad's on TV regularly, it's probably a little bit harder to have a normal life, but do the best you can. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and based on, on your pictures, you've shot some pretty abnormally large wild boars and things like that as well, so... <laughs> I think Kansas normal does mean something different than normal to to a lot of other people. <laughs> right, um, whatever your normal is. I mean, in San Diego, go surfing. You know, in Canada, go go play hockey with your kids and go snow skiing and so forth. But we do love the we love the outdoors. So one of the things that we kind of have to talk about when we're talking about your career, especially because you spend so much time talking about this and the aftermath uh, in your book, Abortion Free is Dr. Tiller's Clinic. Um, what some people might, all your friends know this, but people who don't know you might not realize that the reason you live with your family in Wichita, Kansas, is because after working in places like California to shut down abortion clinics and to try and put abortionists out of business, uh, you decided to focus on the man who was at that time the most notorious late-term abortionist in the country. Um, And you moved your whole family to Wichita, Kansas, where you still live, specifically to try and focus on getting Tiller to quit his business. And, of course, most people will know how that ended up going. Very few people will know. Um, And I I had known about this based on conversations with you, but didn't get all the details till I read your book, that Tiller was actually close to quitting um, before his assassination. So peaceful means had almost entirely worked before some, you know, crazy guy with a gun destroyed everything and badly damaged the pro-life movement in the process. So kind of tell us about your decision to move to Wichita, the activism that you engaged in, and then the, you know, the inside story surrounding, you know, what was at the time the biggest story in the United States of America. Right, right. Well, yeah, it's hard to uh, summarize uh, six or eight years there, but I'll tell you what. Uh, in, in 1999, we released a book called Bioethics in an Age of Biotechnology. And that was the time when they were talking about embryonic stem cell research up in uh, Menlo Park, California. They're taking a baby that's 100 cells old, and they called these cells pluripotent, or and, and every other cell in the body would stem from these pluripotent cells. And they were literally creating babies in order to harvest them. And we were doing some protesting and some work there in California, and and it occurred to me that we'll never uh, uh, end child killing at the earliest stages when in the middle of America there was a guy that was killing babies in the eighth and ninth month. Uh, it was just this horrible uh, revelation. And, of course, being from San Diego, my identity would be, you know, as a surfer boy from Southern California, we had a lot of success, which we talked about earlier, about closing these abortion clinics and being very focused and determined in what we do. If if the tactic didn't work, we threw it out. If the tactic worked, we doubled down on it. And I said, gosh, in the middle of the country, conservative red state, we've got to have some success out there. So... We, uh, we sold our house and rental property and packed up our bags, literally got in a motorhome and drove out to Wichita, Kansas on a crusade to end uh, and close down the nation's largest uh, 
late-term abortion, actually probably the world's largest late-term abortion facility outside of communist China, right? Yeah, for those who don't know what he was doing on inside the clinic, maybe give us a, a rundown. I've read the details, but they're hard to believe. I haven't read anything as gruesome as the descriptions of what was going on in Tiller's clinic until the Gosnell case. Right, and see, uh, Tiller was a clean Gosnell. He, 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 was, he was more methodical. He had, he had a lot more structure. Uh, Gosnell was a lazy George Tiller. So they're exactly the same people, just different uh, degrees of competency. Uh, so, so Tiller actually in, uh, made up or invented the induction abortion, where women would come in in the latest gestational ages. They literally came from countries like France and Britain, where they don't allow abortions after three months. Uh, Canada, Canada, had Canada a, too, yeah. Canada had a, a contract. All your late-term abortions came here to Wichita, Kansas. And the, the, the women would be uh, inducted, and what that means is a, is a needle would come through the woman's abdomen uh, and inject a, a chemical called digoxin into the baby's heart. And they would use a ultrasound guidance to get that needle into the baby's heart, which would cause what they called fetal demise. They kill the baby. And then over the next uh, three, four days, depending on how uh, well the woman reacted to the drugs, the woman's cervix would be dilated and the baby would be delivered, uh, although the baby's obviously deceased. Uh, Tiller then, in order to cover up his crimes, and I say that word intentionally, I believe real crimes, in fact, the deputy chief of police here in Wichita agreed with me that there were crimes being committed uh, along the lines of babies being born alive, illegal experiments being done on these babies, uh, non-consensual abortions being done on these babies. He had inside of his abortion mill a full-size crematorium, the size of, of crematorium that you'd find at uh, a funeral home, where he cremated the remains of all these babies. And this, you're saying, this brings back a shadow of a reference I'm thinking of. Yes, Auschwitz. Yeah. Okay? Because the, stack, the smokestack would literally come up, pierce the middle of the roof of this flat-roofed, building in the middle of Wichita, Kansas, and when he'd fire up that incinerator, the Kansas wind would blow, and these ashes of aborted children would literally, their quarter size, sometimes 50 cent size, penny size ashes, would uh, be, be caught up into the wind and then fall down literally on the heads of the people that were protesting outside that abortion mill. Uh, many times I was brought to tears. And you could always smell, you know, if, if you've been around a while, you know the smell of, uh, you know, timber or you throw a dead possum on a fire or something like that. You know the smell of human flesh. And it's repulsive and disgusting. And that's what he did. And we had to, we literally over a several year period had to change everything in the state. We had to change the legislature. We had to change the governor. We had to change the attorney general. We had to change the district attorney in the city of Wichita. And, and probably just as important, we had to change the hearts and minds of Kansans. They literally did not believe this was happening. We did press conference after press conference with picture after picture and statement and proof and evidence to prove to the state that he was killing late-term children. Once we did that, we changed some laws in the state. 
and we literally wore him down to the point where he came out two weeks before his murder and said, we're closing this place down. He fired his head nurse. His chief of staff uh, had left uh, to Missouri to go take another job. And, uh, and this way it's important to be patient, wait on God, be persistent, trust that God's going to answer your prayers, because it was happening. But when you get frustrated, I, I always say there's two ways of the cross, or the two ways of the kingdom of God. There's the Jesus way, way of the cross, self-denial, self-sacrifice, um, love, endurance. And then there's the insurrection way of Barabbas. He wanted the kingdom of God right now, and that's you know, through murder, insurrection, and mayhem. And so that a Barabbas type came and killed Tiller. That garnered all the headlines and, and all the work that we had been doing to peacefully, nonviolently change the culture and shut down that abortion mill, which was happening. That did not, that truth did not get told. So you, he was almost ready to quit, if I remember correctly from your book. He was shutting down. He was literally shutting down. Yeah, I think that was, I, I hadn't known the full details of that story until I read your book, and that was sort of particularly heartbreaking. I know it's hard to summarize eight years in just in just a couple of paragraphs, but um, besides changing the legislature and working politically, what sort of things did you do from, like, you show up in Kansas, right, you get a place to stay, how did you go about developing the tactics to try and shut Tiller down? Um, because a lot of those tactics are tactics that you still utilize now. Sure. Um, and so how, how did you go about showing up in Wichita and then figuring out how to go from arriving in the same proximity as America's most notorious abortionist and then going from there to attempting to, to ensure that he quit doing abortion? Well, you know, tactics of warfare, if you read Sun Tzu and the Art of War and other military-type uh, exercises, one thing you learn is that the battle— it's not on the battleground. The battle is in the mind of the enemy. That's number one. When, and when you're small, show yourself large. When you're large, you show yourself small. These are just basic military tactics. So we came, we showed ourselves large, uh, even though we're a small band of misfits. <laughs> uh, but we're tenacious. And we had to get into the mind of this guy. And, we, and so one of the first things I did, I showed up on Christmas Day in a blizzard with a sign saying, I'm praying for you, uh, Mr. Tiller. And, and I waited out in front of his house until he drove by. And I wanted him to know that I can stand out here in a blizzard on Christmas Day because that's how much I care about the babies. Right. I sent him flowers on his birthday. I also signed him up for every retirement program catalog that I could find. <laughs> <laughs> look, look how great it is in Barbados. You don't want to be here. Uh, but then we began digging up, uh, doing undercover investigations uh, of, of, of the things that he was doing wrong, and we, we changed the laws. We, we found out that he was illegally uh, violating the law when it comes to the uh, termination of pregnancies. Boy, I hate that word, murdering babies. Uh, you have to have a second abortionist sign off. I'm sorry, a second doctor that's unrelated sign off saying that this uh, late-term abortion is medical, medically necessary. Right. Well, he just brought in Dr. Newhouse, paid her a few bucks, referral fees, and she signed off on every single one was medically necessary. Ultimately, that's what he was charged with. Uh, we, we did, there's a hotel behind this abortion clinic uh, every Tuesday when the women would arrive. We actually got a hotel room up on the third floor, and I had a, a 
very nice camera with a telephoto lens, and we had to get pictures of these women uh, going inside to prove to the public that they were they would always deny that women eight, nine months pregnant were not coming. Well, we got some incredible pictures of women. Of course, we blacked out their faces, but you know, in full gestational age, walking into the abortion clinic. This was not, he was not an OBGYN. We knew exactly what they were. So uh, we, we, we started changing people's minds. We did some undercover investigations and, and exposed. I tell you what, we, we really focus on this. We investigate uh, what's going on inside these abortion mills. Uh, when they make a mistake or they're breaking a law to kill somebody, we expose them. You know, Tiller killed a, a young lady, uh, uh, little Kristen Gilbert. And, and then we demand enforcement. We demand, and, and those three things, and, and change the laws, we can actually, we actually have been very successful in shutting down uh, abortion mills. You know, when, when we found out that Iowa was doing this telemedicine using uh, Skype connections to dispense RU-486 and, and in, in an attempt to have little satellite abortion clinics all over the state, we exposed that. And within three years, we shut down 19 states doing these telemedicine abortions. That's how we got to Gosnell. Uh, we had turned Gosnell in for uh, killing Karma Maya Monger uh, a year before the police raided the place. And, uh, you know, and then later on, Pennsylvania, after the Gosnell trial, Pennsylvania finally enacted some basic clinic licensing laws. In fact, this was recently on the PBS special front line, the abortion divide. 22 abortion mills dropped to 14 abortion mills in one year. See, when abortion mills close down, babies get saved. I mean, right. embed that in your mind. When abortion mills close down, babies get saved. So after Tiller got shot, uh, how did you how did you rebuild? Because uh, I know uh, Scott Roeder was the man who assassinated George Tiller. He's still in prison, to the best of my knowledge. Oh yeah, he'll be there forever. And you, uh, you actually, as you mentioned previously in the podcast, you are now uh, working out of an abortion clinic in Kansas um, that closed down, and this is now your office. Some of some of our listeners who may have watched the, the Netflix documentary Reversing Row um, will have seen video shots of your office, um, including your trophy wall with pieces of abortion clinics that got shut down, which I think is probably my favorite part of your office besides the Bible, <laughs> the Bible verse over your desk. Um, so kind of give us an idea of how you went from um, seeing um, the end of, of the entire uh, Tiller situation and, and the end that came tragically and too soon, especially since a peaceful resolution um, to the existence of his clinic had finally had finally been almost coming to fruition, and then basically turning into the organization that you describe in Abortion Free, which is you learned a lot of things during um, your confrontations with Taylor about how to shut down abortion clinics. And so how did you build the organization from there? So the first thing that happened a week after... George Tiller's death was Leroy Carhart, his associate, and also infamous in his own right as a late-term abortionist out of Nebraska, uh, came to town and said, we're going to open an abortion mill here. We're going to reopen this abortion clinic within a month. Well, Kansas at that point, it was shell-shocked from everything that we had done, of course, the murder of Tiller. And so we knew that these abortionists had to have hospital privileges 
uh, here in the state of Kansas. And so we went to all the hospitals and they said, we said, you know, you, you gave it to Tiller, but we want you to deny hospital privileges to Carhartt, which they did immediately. And then Carhartt said, well, we'll open up an abortion clinic within an hour of, Kansas, of Wichita. So we went to all the hospitals within an hour, two hours, and said the same thing. And they said, fine. And then so uh, Carhartt said, well, I'll start doing these late-term uh, abominations in Bellevue, Nebraska. Well, a legislator up there had been watching what was going on. He called me up and said, what should we do? And I said, well, let's pass a late-term abortion law, which he did. And it shut down the late-term abortions in Nebraska. And I said, wow, we're, we're you know, there's this phoenix rising out of the ashes. We're on a roll here. Let's take this nationwide. Let's take our experiences nationwide. And that's where, you know, you start to – here's my position. Every single abortion mill worldwide is breaking a law at some point or another. I was telling this to our mutual friend, Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. He says, of course, Troy, you can't practice vice virtuously. Right. And and that's the truth. Look at Gosnell. From there, we rolled into exposing Gosnell, uh, James Pentagraph. He finally lost his medical license down in Florida here last month as, as a direct result of our uh, investigation and uh medical uh, report or a, a complaint filed against his medical license. Stephen Brigham up in the Pacific Northwest has lost his medical license because we turned in his criminality uh, and how he's juggling multiple uh, illegal businesses, killing women. Uh, this was a little bit before my time, but sometimes there's sex abuse. Brian Finkel in Arizona owned 25% or did 25% of all the abortions in Arizona. He's sitting in jail for the rest of his life for raping women on the, on the operating room table. So we just started using this. And one thing we did shortly after the Tiller's death was we instituted a whistleblower campaign. And if we can get information uh, on an abortionist that leads to the, his arrest and conviction, his arrest and conviction, we'll give you $25,000. And there was a guy down in Oklahoma City by the name of Naresh Patel, and we had raided his trash can, found out some interesting information. We turned him into the attorney general's office, who did their own investigation, and found out that he was selling abortions to women. These were undercover police officers that went into this abortion clinic, selling them abortions, and they weren't pregnant. And he was arrested. Both his <clears throat> of his abortion clinics were closed. He lost his medical license, and he's down for the count. So, you know, we just take the, just if you just pray and ask God to show you what it is you need to know, he'll provide that information, and then you use it against the abortionist. So this has worked pretty well. Uh, when you, when, how did you end up, that was the one question, how did you end up in your office? Tell the story of how your office was an abortion clinic and is now the headquarters for Operation Rescue. So there's a number of ways that abortion mills close. I mentioned criminality, sex abuse, um, losing the abortionist. If you, you get rid of the weak link, you make sure his, his medical license is revoked. Bam, like Pentagraph, the Orlando Women's Center shuts down. Another one, and this is one of my favorite ones, is simply through attrition. You know, and any business owner knows, that you have a certain line of money that you need to make every month in order to break even. You go below that number, and you're operating in the red. If you go above that number, you're operating in the black. And what we did at this abortion mill, they were killing 
one day a week or two days a week, and we flooded the streets, the sidewalks, the alleyways with uh, pro-life activists, and we were able to pick off a certain percentage of the women going in for abortions. And, you know, maybe that was 10%, 15%, 20%, whatever it was, it put this abortion mill in the red, and they started operating in the red, in other words, negatively, financially speaking, month after month after month. And the owner of the building was sick and tired of it, and the building was in such disrepair, and it, oh, it's such a, it stunk so bad. They put it up for sale, but they only wanted to sell it to a pro-choice investor that would keep the abortion clinic open. So through a third party, I was able to make an offer that was accepted and buy the abortion clinic. And these guys didn't know <laughs> that they were getting kicked out until two weeks before we closed on the place. <laughs> and they got booted out. They had no money. They couldn't go open an abortion clinic down the street. See, that's the way I think that's the way you buy abortion clinics. Some people have gone out and literally given abortionists millions of dollars, and then they just go open someplace else. I'm not into that. We have to be strategic about it, but through a loss of business is a great way to put these guys out of business. Those who have never heard of your work before, you've got an entire trophy wall. One of the things I think would be both encouraging and interesting for listeners is tell a couple of your favorite pro-life war stories in the movement. You know, a lot of people feel pretty cowed. Um, these days, a lot of people feel as if, you know, the culture has swung against us because so many things have gone so crazy so quickly. And so when you look at the battle in front of you, one of the things that struck me about your book, Abortion Free, is that as the rest of this conversation has indicated, you uh, actually have a lot more hope than most people do when you're facing this. And that's because of um, the things that you've you've experienced and the sort of activism that you've done. So tell us a few of your favorite war stories. Gosh, there's so many. Um, Philip Milgram in San Diego, and I have his, it's a choice for women, I have his sign on my office door. He's, we decided we're going to be there every day that he was open, and we were there for a year. He sued us, he maligned our character to the San Diego Union, and then one day we showed up and there's a closed sign. He literally closed down, moved to Vegas, and opened up a car wash. And uh, I, I just went up and grabbed his sign, and it's hanging on my wall today. Another one, <laughs> Rapine Osanthanon. He killed, it's a tragic story, actually, though. He, he killed Laura Hope Smith up in Hyannis, Massachusetts. And this is Kennedy country, right, Massachusetts, on the Cape there. Very liberal. Well, he gave her a, a, an overdose of fentanyl. And uh, he, but he didn't have any sort of resuscitation or he didn't have a heart monitor on her. So he put her under and he finished the abortion, didn't even know she had died in the middle of the abortion. So he hired a police officer from a couple counties away to come in. He put uh, uh, resuscitation equipment, some inspection uh, stickers on there that were fabricated and backdated them. So when when we found out about it, we went full steam ahead demanding that the district attorney charge this guy. And lo and behold, when they came in, they found out that he had indeed fabricated some of these inspection stickers and brought in safety equipment and uh, heart monitors and so forth. And it was three years to the day that Laura Hope Smith was killed at this abortion clinic, three years to the day that he pled guilty to manslaughter, went to jail, closed his abortion clinics, 
and gave $2 million to Eileen Smith, uh, Laura's mother, who we worked very closely with. That was very, very satisfying and gratifying. And gosh, another huge one, which everybody knows, and this is you know one of these things that they don't, a lot of people don't know the backstory I mentioned earlier, Gosnell. Right. Uh, this this butcher was on our radar screen for years before he was actually raided. We were jubilant the day he was raided. A lot of people didn't know that you know this, the whole story, but we were jumping up and down and screaming and and having a great time. And uh, and but then within a week he was on TV saying, "I can't wait to get back to work. These guys have it all wrong." So we filed petitions with Seth Williams, the district attorney, by the way, who was pro-choice, and demanded a grand jury. And so after several months of us demanding a grand jury, he finally had one seated, and it took another year and a half. So imagine, they rate, the movie doesn't show this, but they raided his abortion mill. It, wasn't, and, and it was a year and a half later before he was actually indicted. And so the trial was scheduled. We showed up. Nobody was in the courtroom. So we started these blogs every day. You know, this is what this guy did. He was slitting the throats of these babies that were born alive. Uh, they called it a, a charnel house or a house of horrors or a house of bones. And uh, slowly but surely, the, it started to catch on. And a couple of friends of mine, Andy Moore and Brian Kemper, started this tweet fest when Twitter was just kind of new and tweeting at uh, Anderson Cooper and Rachel Maddow and everybody and the next Monday, the courtroom was flooded with people. And, of course, he was the first abortionist, I think, in history or since 1973 that was convicted of murder in the first degree for killing unborn babies or born babies, but pre-gestational. And a lot of people don't know this. He was, he was only convicted of manslaughter in the death of Karma Maya Monger. Yeah. So, so a mother's life was worth less than these unborn babies that he was convicted of. And he ended up giving up his right to an appeal uh, so that he would not face the death penalty in Pennsylvania. He actually could face the death penalty, but he gave up that, that in his right to appeal. How gratifying is that? I worked 30 years in, this pro, in the pro-life movement to finally see an abortionist convicted of first-degree murder for killing children. And I'll tell you, that year, the year he was convicted, we lost more abortion clinics nationwide than any other year before or since. I think that abortionists were watching that trial secretly, and when they found out he was convicted, they said, oh, my goodness, I've been doing the same thing for years. I'm getting out while the getting's good. Yeah, I actually drove to the uh, final closing arguments at the Gosnell trial in Philly and sat in the courtroom just because I wanted to see an abortionist in handcuffs. <laughs> you know, years ago, gosh, I think I have it someplace in my office. There was there were uh, stickers that we had. This was like 1991, 92, 93. Imagine abortionists on trial. We. It was a very controversial, you know, sticker. That's and even pro-lifers would argue that's the craziest thing in my in the world. I think it was Andrew Burnett, American Coalition of Life Activists, that brought that up, or maybe uh, the late Paul DePerry. But we don't have to imagine that anymore. We no longer have to imagine abortionists on trial and going to jail. That this is what makes today such a great day to join the pro-life movement and work hard to end the child killing. I see the end in sight. 
there's finally light at the end of the tunnel, and I can't wait for that glorious day when every child is protected under the law. Well, It'll you've be a beautiful day. You've said before that you were you you were one sort of the fringe activist because you don't uh, essentially change your language at all when you're referring to what they what it is that they do to babies because your tactics were controversial. And now you've actually been on conference calls with the president of the United States. That's quite the switch, or not? <laughs> well, listen, when you're right, you're right, okay? And <laughs> don't compromise your beliefs in order to get into some high society uh, meeting, okay? And so many people do. You know, there's this old song uh, written by the group Survivor. It's called Eye of the Tiger, okay? And one of the, the, the first lines is, it happens so fast, people change their passion for glory. And the pro-life movement in many instances has become institutionalized, where they give their employees 401k programs, which isn't bad, but it becomes a career choice. And they, they, they stop focusing on the goal of ending child killing uh, and instead would compromise uh, some of their beliefs, throw some language in here that... Uh, you know, water this bill down in order to just get it passed so we can go to our donors to earn more money, but the bill has no teeth in it. The, uh, the original Born Alive Infant Protection Act is that way. Uh, it has no teeth in it. When, when uh, Angel had her baby killed in Orlando, Florida, uh, that baby Rowan was born at 22 weeks, we had the evidence. We tried to prosecute uh, the abortionist, but could not because we found out that that law had no teeth. But National Rights Life was doing cartwheels and fundraising about how great the law was. So I just say, look, God said it. I believe it. That settles it, right? Abortion is murder. I've been sued a half a dozen, dozen times. I'm not going to change my language uh, on that. Abortion is murder. And as the founder of our organization used to like to say, if abortion is murder, then we need to act like it, or more specifically, act like Jesus. We need to be truthful. We need to be willing to, to uh, get a whip and clean out the temple, uh, but at the same time be self-sacrificing uh, to the point where we lay down our lives for these innocent children. And then, you're, and then you get brought to the table. You know, I, I love the Psalm 23 that says, The Lord prepares for me a table in the midst of mine enemies. And I've literally been brought to places where I, I shouldn't be in the presence of the president. Are you kidding me? congressional members and people ask my advice, but I think they see the power of conviction over uh, those that would compromise for a position. I, I hope I'm saying that okay and not offending too many people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I guess I guess one of my, my, my last questions would be, because I don't know exactly how much you can say here, but your involvement, uh, I should say, in the baby body part scandal and and all of that, um, just tell our listeners what you're allowed to say publicly about the, the lawsuits that you're currently enduring. Gosh, it's so hard to think what I can say because there's so much I know that I, I can't say. Right. Um, and this stems for the Center of Medical Progress. I'm a founding board member of that organization. We Everybody knows all the videos that came out. There's, I think, another 400 hours of videos that have not been released that I cannot discuss and we're being sued in federal court in San Francisco under a judge that was appointed by Obama. And Planned Parenthood has successfully argued that every piece of evidence that has been submitted in discovery is attorney's eyes only. Now, get this, attorney, the people who are prosecuting me 
uh, have convinced the judge that all the evidence that we're able to gather in this lawsuit are attorney's eyes only, which means even I am not allowed to see the evidence that they're presenting against me to convict me of RICO, uh, unfair business practices, contract disputes, or uh, breach of contract, and um, illegal wiretapping. Uh, even emails that I sent that are my emails, I am not allowed to disclose because they're under seal. It's one of the craziest things I've ever been involved in. But you know what? I've seen other lawsuits uh, in the past. I've been sued by the Department of Justice. I've been sued by Planned Parenthood. I've been sued by sundry abortionists. I've been sued by the IRS. I've been sued by Randall Terry. And I've seen all these lawsuits kind of disappear. I still believe that there's hope that God can uh, is still in the business of miracles, and I'm praying that's going to happen. And uh, I do know that Planned Parenthood and NAF is under investigation by the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And if we can get a conviction on Deborah Nucatola for crushing babies or Mary Gadder for asking for a Lamborghini in exchange for baby bodies, babies' bodies, if we can get a conviction on these people, I think my lawsuit goes away. But more importantly, we get a conviction against the abortion cartel and we put them in jail where they belong. I'm tired. Jonathan, I'm tired of wearing the orange jumpsuits. Okay, I've been in jail enough. <laughs> it's time that the other side wear the orange jumpsuits and join Gosnell and Finkel and Dr. Hamilton out of Oklahoma City and Pentagraph and all these other guys who, who are in jail and deservedly so. One final question to anybody who's listening to this uh, and is considering joining the pro-life movement or hasn't yet. Uh, give us a message for them before we sign off. It's the most important issue of our time, of your lifetime, the wholesale slaughter of innocent human beings on, a ep on an epic proportion. We look to other uh, times in the past, the Armenian slaughter, one, two million Armenians by the Young Turks, the Nazis, Stalin, uh, Mao Zedong, the, the Colombian... Uh, uh, Cambodian killing field, and we are horrified at this, but it's happening right now down the street from your house. Now's the time to join this peaceful revolution to end the child killing, and history will judge us accordingly. Troy, thanks so much for taking the time to come on. Hey, it's my pleasure. You're a great friend, and Godspeed to you and all those who are listening. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with the president of Operation Rescue and longstanding pro-life activist Troy Newman. We hope you enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you head over to LifeSiteNews.com for more news articles, more commentary, uh, previous episodes of this podcast, which you can find at LifeSiteNews.com and at virtually any podcast platform where you get your other podcasts. So thank you so much for joining us this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week.